14 years spent laboring for Laban had netted absolutely nothing for Jacob in the way of wages, although his faithful, dedicated, and skilled service had vastly enriched his father-in-law. Yet, materially speaking, Jacob was as penniless as the day he had arrived in Padan Aram. In this lesson, which is entitled Laban Outspotted, which is taken from Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 to 43, we are going to learn that in order to provide for his family, Jacob agreed to another six-year stay in Haran, shepherding Laban's flocks, but also building up and caretaking a flock of his very own. We will discuss how he made an agreement with Laban to obtain flocks of sheep and goats of his own. Laban, you know, had been exploiting his nephew, turned son-in-law, at every turn. So it was now time, according to the Lord God in heaven, for Laban to begin to taste a little of his own medicine. This lesson is actually a good one for those of us who have ever been the victims of the exploitation of another. There are many people, and sad to say many who even use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who prey on the honesty and the trust of others. The world is literally overrun with Laban-type characters who will cheat us and change our wages ten times if and when it is to their advantage. Of course, there are times when we can use our courts and other legitimate means to attain, attempt to attain justice, and naturally we should protect our families from evil. However, when we have done all that we can do without breaking the clear commandments of God's word, we must simply place ourselves trustingly in the Lord's hands. God will eventually avenge all wrong. He will have the final word. Remember, God is with his own just as he was with Jacob. Evil, self-centered, greedy people may rob us of our wages and of our rights, and they may deceive us and they may take advantage of our trust, but they cannot touch our hearts. Furthermore, we should not allow them to steal our joy. When we are defrauded by another, we can always take comfort and shelter in God's righteous judgment. Now, it is natural, of course to want to defend ourselves against injustice. And it's natural to retaliate, or at least to want to retaliate, against those who have treated us, treated us unjustly. But the non-natural thing, or the supernatural thing to do, is to allow ourselves to be humbled. If we, will, if we demonstrate that we are long-suffering <clears throat> and forgiving toward those who misuse us, we not only will grow more in grace ourselves, but we will become a testimony to others of our Savior. God wants to accomplish the unnatural traits of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. That's what his work in us is all about. I mean, everything about Christ, his love, his forgiveness, his, his um, holiness, his justice, all those were unnatural traits. And that's what God wants to work in us and to accomplish in us. He wants us to become Christ-like. It's easy to be patient when things are going along our way, but it is far more of a demonstration of the grace of God in our lives when we are patient and kind and loving and forgiving when things are not going our way. We really only bring anxiety and frustration into our own hearts and lives when we attempt to avenge ourselves. God will judge justly and we just need to put things in his hands and not try to bring vengeance ourselves evil men will eventually reap what they have sown and this is what we see in this lesson concerning uh, Laban he finally begins to reap what he has sown Jacob may have failed in many areas but in this one of not avenging himself against an evil greedy self-centered man who greatly misused him. In this, Jacob did very well. He was unbelievably patient with Laban. And in the end, after working a total of 20 years for Laban, Jacob was able to honestly say to his two wives this. He said, quote, Ye know that with all my power I have served your father, and your father hath deceived me and changed my wages ten times 
but God suffered him not to hurt me. That's in Genesis 31, verses 6 and 7. You see, the Lord God not only protected Jacob against the wiles of Laban, but he even prospered Jacob in spite of all that misuse and uh, wage-changing deception that went on of Laban. So because uh, Jacob was willing to just not avenge himself and leave all that to God, God prospered him. God blessed him. So we have seen how Jacob handled his wives, and he didn't do too well in that. Now, in this lesson, we're going to look at how Jacob handled his wages. And he does much better than he did with handling his wives. His 14 years of wageless work were finally over. You know, he'd served seven years for the wife he thought was going to be Rachel. Then he got tricked and got Leah. And then he had to work another seven years again for Rachel, but really it was for Leah. But he worked a total of 14 years. Now, those years are over. So it was either time to return home, you know, back to Canaan, or it was time to make a new wage contract with his father-in-law. As we discuss this next stage of Jacob's life in Haran, which began, now this is, this is the key, this is when this next stage began. It began with the birth of Joseph. So as we do this, we're going to look at three main outline divisions, which you see up here. This is, by the way, the only um, transparency I have. But anyway, we're going to have three outline divisions. We're going to talk about the beginning of this new stage of Jacob's life. Then we're going to look at the bargaining between him and Uncle Laban. And then we'll conclude with the breeding of the livestock and all the various um, breeding techniques that Jacob used. I I don't know how interesting, you know, if you want to take a snooze, maybe you will when we get to the breeding. But I learned a few things along the way. I'd like to see you make up a song about this lesson. (laughs) That would be a challenge. (laughs) Okay, so let's begin with the beginning. And uh, for this section, we have two subdivisions. We're going to talk about the return request of Jacob, and then we'll look at the uh, reluctance reply of Laban. So let's begin with the return request of Jacob, verses 25 and 26. Okay, starting at verse 25, and it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, send me away that I may go unto mine own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served thee, and let me go, for thou knowest my service which I have done thee. The opening sentence of this episode immediately, you notice, links us back to the birth of Joseph. That's where we closed up our last lesson. His birth was a turning point in the mind and in the heart of his father, Jacob. Because Joseph was not only the first son of Jacob's first love, Rachel, but he was born at the end of Jacob's long 14 years of wageless labor. The birth of Joseph brought new life into the heart of his father. His days of servitude were at last, you know, over. It was time to either turn back and go home to his parents, you know, in Canaan, or it was time to begin providing independently of Laban for his own family. From Jacob's request, actually it's given in the form of a command, uh, from this request we get the distinct feeling here that Laban, once again, was delinquent in his dealings with Jacob. That second set of seven years of labor was over, and yet Laban had apparently not bothered to approach Jacob, you know, about making a new contract, a contract with wages this time. Remember, he had done this before. He had been delinquent when the first seven set of years was over, and it was time for him, for Jacob to receive Rachel as his wife. So, as had been true in that first set of seven years, Jacob had to take the initiative, and he had to be the one to go to his father-in-law and make another demand request. Notice he says, first of all, send me away. That's a command request. And then he also says, give me my wives and my children. His end of the bargain for his two wives and his, um, how many children does he have now? That we know of, 11. He could have had other daughters besides Dinah. 
but the only daughter we know of was Dinah. So we know he had 11 children at this time. Um, so he says, uh, give me my, my wives and my children. And he wants Laban to send him away to his own place, to his own country. It had been more than 14 years now since he had seen his home and seen his parents. And his heart was ready to go back. It had been ready seven years earlier, and now he was really ready. Now, you might wonder, why does Jacob have to go to Laban and even ask for his permission, you know, to leave? Why doesn't he just pick up, you know, pack up his things and, and his wives and his children and head back to Canaan? Why doesn't he just do that? Well, Jacob could have packed up his own few belongings and left on his own, but he would have needed Laban's permission, you see, to depart with his wives and his children. And this becomes very clear to us later on in Genesis 31, verse 23, when Jacob did attempt to leave, this will be six years later, when Jacob did attempt to leave with his family without Laban's permission. What did Laban do? He gathered together a force of men, and he pursued Jacob in great anger. And if it had not been for the intervention of God, God spoke to Laban in a dream and and, uh, threatened him, basically, not to touch Jacob. But if God had not intervened, what do you think Laban might have done when he caught up with Jacob? He, He might have harmed him. And he certainly would have carried back his daughters and all the children. Because at this point in time, and even six years later, Laban still looks upon Jacob as a servant, as a slave. And he looks on his, the, the two wives as his own daughters, which they were, but he thinks of them as his, and he calls Jacob's children his. He says, give me my daughters and give me my children. So he thinks of uh, Laban really as a slave, as a servant. And uh, we'll see that when we get into chapter 31. So Jacob, at this point, could have left on his own. But it would have been impossible, at least at this point in time, for him to leave with his family. Also, later on, when he did leave, six years up the road, when he did leave without Laban's permission, he had by then become a very wealthy man. And he had transport animals of his own camels and asses and men servants and maid servants and all that sort of thing. At this point in time, he has nothing. So he had to have Laban's permission because Laban would have had to give give him some camels and, and all supplies and all that sort of thing to get his whole family back to Canaan. You see what I'm saying? So without Laban's permission, Jacob could not have left with his family. Okay, so that was the return request of Jacob. Let's look now at the reluctance reply of Laban, verses 27 and 28. And Laban said unto him, unto Jacob, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry. For I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. And he said, this is still Laban speaking, Appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. In other words, tell me what you want for wages, and I will give it to you. Now here, notice first of all in verse, 30, uh, in verse 27, that Laban's response to Jacob's request to, to depart and go home, his response, Laban's response is another delay tactic. And when had he tried this delay tactic on another occasion? Remember when Abraham's servant, Eliezer, had wanted to leave right away the next morning with Rebekah to take her back to marry Isaac? And Laban, her brother, along with Rebekah's mother, had tried to get the servant to delay. They said, oh, no, don't go yet. Stay at least 10 days. Well, we know that that delay would have turned into probably a permanent postponement of the whole thing. Well, here Laban is at it again. Laban did not at all plan to let Jacob go, although here he is pretending to be very polite and gracious, and he even uses the words, you know, I pray thee. If Jacob had stuck to his guns about departing, we can be sure 
that Laban would have denied him any kind of transport animals, you know, camels. He would have denied him any food supplies. He would have denied him any clothing. Because really everything that Jacob had was not his. He came just with bare minimum. I mean, we know he came with a staff and that's about it. And so everything would have had to have been supplied by Laban. And without such things, as we said, Jacob, with his large family, could never have safely made the trip. And if he had even tried to make the trip, Laban surely would have gathered some of the men together and his sons, and they would have prevented them from departing and possibly have even harmed Jacob. Yet we find that Laban here did try to come across as accommodating. After all, he did not want to uh, lose the best worker that he had ever had working for him. Furthermore, he did not want to use any kind of a threat at this point because if he did, you know, if he used a threat on Jacob to keep him there, um, then Jacob would not have worked for him as diligently or as um, conscientiously as he had in the past. So Laban told Jacob that he had learned by experience, and we don't see in the, um, our English translation what this is really meaning here. But when he says that he learned by experience, it literally in the Hebrew means that he learned by enchantments or he learned by divination that Jacob was the reason for his prosperity. Laban even brought the name of Jehovah into his plea for Jacob to stay. Apparently, Laban had been very curious as to why his livestock was doing so very well under Jacob's care. And so what he did is he used an occultic practice, which was very prevalent in his day and in his culture, to find out the reason, you know, to find out why his livestock was just multiplying and doing so well. Whatever he did, God overruled the answer which he received. And God made it clear to Laban that he was being blessed because of Jacob. And God was the one doing the blessing. Now Laban, being a relative of Abraham, he knew, you know, in his head, he had a head knowledge about Jehovah, God. You know, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But he was in practice... You know, in his knowledge, he knew about Jehovah, but in his practice, he was really a pagan mystic. He kept household gods, you know, he kept idols, and we'll see about that in a couple more lessons. And he consulted here, he consulted some kind of a soothsayer or an oracle, or he used some kind of pagan or superstitious method in order to um, discover what he wanted to know. And that's, what is, that's all that's meant in when it says he learned by experience. He went to some kind of occultic practice or used some kind of superstitious means to find out. He did not go to Jehovah God for the answers to his questions. Because to his thinking, you see, Jehovah was Jacob's God. And Jehovah was a God, you know, but he was Jacob's God. He had his own gods. At any rate, Laban did learn that he was being blessed because of Jacob. So it was all the more reason that he did not want to lose Jacob. You know, he didn't want Jacob to leave him. Knowing that the former contract of wageless working was at an end, and knowing that he could stretch that no further because he had no more daughters to offer Jacob, you know, to marry, Laban quickly sought to make a new contract to bring Jacob back into his hire, you know, to keep him as his servant. And so he actually proposed work for wages this time. He said, appoint me thy wages or tell me what you want for wages and I will give it. Now, at first glance, this sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds, it appears generous because he's asking Jacob to assign his own wages but it was not it really wasn't generous at all here i mean we we probably know laban well enough by now to know that this was not as it appears and jacob had learned enough about laban to know that it was not generous either it was really selfish because laban was attempting to keep 
Jacob, you see, as a servant. He was attempting to keep him as a hireling. He was also being very slyly clever here in asking Jacob to state his own wages. You know, you tell me what you want, Jacob, because he had learned by experience, not divination experience, but by actual experience, Laban had learned that Jacob was very modest in what he, you know, requested in his demands while he was very dedicated in his service. So Laban was hoping that once again, Jacob would ask for less than he was really worth. Laban had no intention of paying one penny more than he had to. He really would have loved to have paid far less than what was right. Jacob, however, had learned a few lessons along the way about Uncle Laban, or father-in-law Laban, and he was not about to get taken by him again. He had also himself seen how the Lord had blessed Laban because of him and through him. And since Laban had finally, you know, after 14 years of working for this employer, Laban had finally admitted something positive about Jacob's work and the great increase that it had brought to him personally. So Jacob decided that he was going to use this opportunity to give his own testimony, not only about his work ethics, which were also, you know, something we should emulate, because Jacob definitely was a good, hard, dedicated, skilled worker. So he's going to give a testimony about his own work ethics, but he's also going to give, include a testimony about his Lord. If Laban wanted to make a new work contract with him, then he needed to understand that Jacob knew full well how blessed Laban had become because of him. So Jacob made a service pronouncement. That's what we're going to look at, first of all, under the bargaining. He makes a clear service pronouncement about his own service. Then he goes on to present his salary proposal. And then the third thing we're going to look at in our next section is Laban's sly preventative. Okay, so let's begin with looking at Jacob's service pronouncement, verses 29 and 30. It says, and this is... um, Jacob speaking, okay, in verse 29, it says, And he, Jacob, said unto him, Laban, Thou knowest how I have served thee, and how thy cattle was with me. For it was little which thou hadst before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude. And the Lord hath blessed thee since my coming. And now, when shall I provide for mine own house also? Knowing that Laban's wage proposal, you know, tell me what you want, Jacob, and I'll give it to you. Well, Jacob, knowing that that was merely tactical, in other words, um, it put Jacob in the position of naming an opening figure in that bargaining process, which then... Laban would work down, you know, he'd say, oh, that's far too much. You know, he would have said that. So anyway, knowing it was tactical, Jacob did not just come right out and state his proposal. First, he reminded Laban of how faithfully and diligently he had been serving him for the last 14 years. And he tells him and reminds him here of how small Laban's livestock herds and flocks had been when Jacob had first arrived in Haran 14 years earlier. You know, in other words, he's saying here for Laban to, to merely have admitted that the Lord had blessed him because of Jacob, that was insufficient because it was a vast understatement. The little which Laban had possessed before Jacob had arrived had increased into what? What does it say in verse 30? into a multitude. You know, he had little, just a tiny, few little sheep and goats. And now he had a whole multitude. So, you know, Laban wasn't really giving a great compliment when he said, the Lord has blessed me because of you. That was an understatement. He had greatly blessed Laban because of Jacob. So the gist of what Jacob was saying here to Laban was this. This is paraphrased. He's saying, since the Lord has done so very much for you because of me, surely the least 
you can do in return is to let me provide now for my own family. You know, that's the very least you can do and, and have a fair wage for me. You know, Laban might be very wealthy because of Jacob, but Jacob himself is still what? Destitute. I mean, penniless. He has nothing. So that's his, um, that was his service pronouncement. Now let's look at his salary proposal, verses 31 to 34. And this is kind of where we get into the confusing part here. This is Jacob's, uh, no, let's see, and he said, no, this is uh, Laban. When it says, and he said, that's Laban. Laban said, what shall I give thee? And now Jacob responds, and Jacob said, thou shalt not give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. All right, now here's his proposal, starting in verse 32. I will pass through all thy flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle and all the brown cattle among the sheep and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and of such shall be my hire." So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come for my hire before thy face. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. And Laban said, Behold, I would it might be according to thy word. Now that sounds awfully confusing, doesn't it? Let's see if we can break it down here and understand what's going on. All right, Laban's question at the beginning of verse uh, 31, what shall I give thee? Again, that might sound, on the surface level, it might sound generous, but he had already proven that he did not just give anything, right? If Laban had desired to give Jacob something, he could have offered him a generous going away gift. You know, he, uh, he could have understood Jacob's need to get back to his parents who were aging. We don't know, even know if his mother is still alive at this point, but maybe she is. Maybe she dies in this next sec, uh, six years. We don't know when she died. We just know she died some time before he did return. But uh, his father is aging, his mother is aging, and he hasn't been home in a long time. So Laban should have understood that Jacob would need to get back home. And he, if he had been a kind man, he could have thanked him for his 14 years of dedicated, loyal work and uh, said something like this, since the Lord has blessed me so very much because of you and because you have been such a good worker and so conscientious in um, keeping my flocks, I am going to give you one-third or one-fourth or one-fifth, or whatever. I mean, I'm going to give you a percentage of the flocks. I mean, he had little, and now he has multitudes. He certainly could have given Jacob some kind of a going-away gift and just let him go. But Laban did not operate like that. He did not give. He wasn't a giver. He was a what? A taker. He didn't give. He took. Furthermore, Jacob was wise enough to know that anything Laban might give him would be terribly insufficient. Also, he did not want to be indebted in any way to this man, in particular this man. He had had enough of that. So he would earn his own pay, and he, Jacob, would dictate the terms of this new contract, and he would control the fulfilling of that contract. Jacob had apparently been giving this a whole lot of thought. I mean, he had learned a lot about Laban. Therefore, instead of just coming out and naming a sum of money, Jacob made a rather complicated proposal here regarding the livestock. But it was one which he knew that Laban could hardly turn down because it, seem, you know, it seemingly favored Laban so tremendously. And uh, those were just the kind of contracts Laban quickly agreed to. So he knew that uh, Laban would love this proposal. What Jacob proposed was that he would continue to both shepherd 
and supervise Laban's flocks. But this time, his pay would not be in wives. (laughs) He had enough of them. This time, his pay would be in livestock. However, that livestock would consist of yet unborn, less desirable animals. Animals not yet born and less desirable. To better understand Jacob's proposal, we need to, first of all, realize that the normal dominant color for sheep, and you all know this, is what color? Solid white, okay? While the normal dominant color for goats, and that, by the way, is the meaning of the the term cattle. When you see the word cattle in the text, it's really speaking of goats. The normal dominant color for goats was either dark brown or black. So we have white sheep and we have dark brown or black goats. And um, Jacob here was proposing that the multicolored animals, in other words, those that were either uh, either speckled or striped, you know, they they weren't solid color. They weren't solid white or they weren't solid brown or black. Um, He was proposing that the multicolored animals, which were less desirable, they would become his. However, he would not take any pre-existing multicolored animals. In other words, no pre-existing spotted or speckled or ring-straked or whatever they're called in here, animals, from Laban's current flocks. In other words, when they're making this bargain... Everything that Laban had in the way of livestock, right then and there, none of that was going to be Jacob's. Jacob's would be from yet-to-be-born animals, okay? So Jacob, and then Jacob said in uh, verse 32 that he would personally go through all of Laban's current flocks and he would remove all the existing spotted or speckled animals. And he would give them to Laban. They would therefore not be used for breeding purposes. You see, because if if Jacob took those that are already multicolored, he could interbreed them, right? And then get more of of the kind that were going to belong to him. So he's going to remove all of them and give them to Laban and um, separate them from the rest of the flock. And uh, that way, Jacob would only receive for his own keeping any abnormally colored animals that were born from the solid colored animals. You see how he's making it so much more difficult for himself? So let's summarize here. There's three points to his proposal. Let's summarize Jacob's salary proposal, okay? First of all, Laban was to own and keep all pre-existing animals. Secondly, Jacob himself would go through the flocks and the herds and he would separate all the speckled and spotted pre-existing animals from Laban's solid-colored flocks and any young that were born from them would go to Laban. All right? You know, he just separated all the multicolored, and he gave them to Laban. He would give them to Laban, and all the babies that would come from them were not going to be Jacob's. They would be Laban's. All right? That's the second part. And then third, Jacob would only receive for himself any future spotted or speckled animals, which would be born from Laban's solid-colored sheep and goats. That's a pretty tough proposal there. You see, Jacob knew that he had to present Laban with a definite advantage for the greedy man to accept uh, these terms. After all, the whole flock did belong to Laban, even though it was because of Jacob and because of Jacob's God that Laban owned multitudes instead of a little. Jacob understood that Laban would never agree to something that was fair (laughs) and equal. Do you know any people like that? He would only agree to something that was absolutely ridiculously lopsided, you know, in his favor. And this proposal did the trick. Everyone knew 
that white sheep, you know, solid white sheep, which mated with other solid white sheep. And everyone knew that brown goats or black goats that mated with other brown or black goats seldom produced spotted and speckled young babies. So starting with only the solid colored animals, Jacob would receive, you know, just a very low percentage of the babies that would be born because there'd only be a few multicolored animals that he could claim as his own. Furthermore, the multicolored animals were considered less desirable. They were the less desirables of of the flock, and they were oftentimes the weaker of the flock as well, you know, being weaker than the solid colored animals. So we say, why would Jacob propose such a deal when it would appear so obvious that he would certainly get the raw end of things here. Well, there are several several reasons, and one of them I've already mentioned is because he knew he had to make a proposal which strongly favored Laban, or else Laban would not agree to it. Secondly, and I think this is one of your homework questions, so if you're listening well, I'm giving you the answers. Secondly, as Jacob himself stated in verse 33... He was going to be an honest testimony here. That's what is meant when he said, so shall my righteousness answer for me. He wanted to be a testimony before Laban. Laban would very easily, you see, be able to check Jacob's flocks. And therefore, he could determine Jacob's honesty in keeping this agreement. Any white sheep or any solid-colored brown or black goats, which would be included in Jacob's flocks, would automatically stand out. I mean, you could see them. And and Laban could come along and say, that does not belong to you. You know, you've stolen from me. So in doing it this way, you know, saying I just get the multicolored ones, it's a very easy way for Jacob to maintain his testimony before Laban and for Laban to see that he's being honest. Also, it would be an easy way to keep Laban from claiming some of Jacob's flocks. So it worked both ways. A third reason Jacob made this proposal was his faith in the Lord. He had already seen how the Lord had indeed prospered the flocks of Laban under his care, under Jacob's care. And he had also, remember now, he had also just recently experienced the Lord's graciousness in not only having given him ten sons and one daughter through Leah and the handmaids, but in also giving him a son through Rachel, who had been barren. So Jacob was really seeing God's hand at work in his life. And he was going to now trust the Lord in this situation with these flocks. Also, So that's the third reason. Also, we have to throw in the fact that Jacob was a very good and a very skilled, a very knowledgeable shepherd who had obviously learned a trick or two about um, breeding down through his years of dealing with, with sheep and goats. So he had a few breeding tricks up his sleeve, we could say. And he obviously figured that these tricks... And they're not really tricks, but they were just, you know, good breeding methods. Along th- that, along with God's help, he's trusting God is going to help him in this, that this, these things would give him enough wages, enough flocks and herds to be able to provide independently for his family and then to be able to return home on his own. Now, Laban, who surely must have thought that he uh, would have to have made a far less favorable contract than the one that was offered, he immediately jumped at the opportunity to seal this deal. Without a word, a single word of protest, notice, he doesn't say, he should have really protested about how unfair it was to his son-in-law, but he didn't do that. And he merely says, behold, I would it might be according to thy word. So the bargain was sealed by his agreement. However, Dishonest and greedy men find it very difficult to trust anyone. Why do you think that is? Why, is, why do you think 
dishonest men find it so hard to trust others? Right. I think they think that all people think the way they do. And so dishonest people have a really hard time of trusting anyone. And uh, we're going to see that he, even though he had no reason to distrust Jacob, that's exactly what Laban did. He distrusted Jacob, and his next action shows that distrust, and it was immediate. (laughs) The minute they sealed the deal, he was off essentially cheating on their contract. So let's look at Laban's sly preventative. We'll look at verses 35 and 36. And he removed, now the he here is Laban, all right? In verse 35, and he, Laban, removed that day the he-goats that were ring-straked and spotted and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted and every one that had some white in it and all the brown among the sheep and gave them into the hand of his sons. First time we hear about Laban's sons. And he set three days' journey betwixt himself and Jacob. And Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Okay, remember back in verse 32 when Jacob made his salary proposal? He had offered or he had said that he, now he's the shepherd of Jacob's flocks. He is the main shepherd. He'd been shepherding Jacob's flocks for 14 years. And for 14 years, he had been very, very honest. We'll see that in a minute. I'll tell you how honest he had been. So he said that he would pass through. I mean, who knew the sheep? Excellently, You know, the shepherd knows each sheep by name and they know his name and all that sort of thing. He should have been the one to go through, pass through the flocks, and separate all the multicolored animals from the flocks. But Laban didn't trust him. And so Laban himself goes through the flocks and removes all the spotted and speckled animals. And he does it when? That, that very day, that day, he saw to the separating himself. He didn't trust Jacob. He probably thought that Jacob would leave even a pure white sheep with just one little tiny spot on it, you know, of another color. Or that Jacob would leave a brown goat which might have just a tinge of a speckle or just a tinge of white on it so as to help increase the likelihood of breeding a higher percentage of multicolored animals. Of course, we can be sure that as Laban himself did the separating, he did that very thing, except in reverse. He probably took every animal that had just a tiny spot or a tiny speckle of another color in order to lessen Jacob's chances of breeding multicolored animals. And that's why he wanted to do the separating rather than leaving it up to Jacob. Furthermore, in his distrust of Jacob, Laban had the multicolored flocks and herds taken a three days journey away from the pure white and pure brown livestock. And this, you see, was a preventative measure to ensure that Jacob didn't sneak around, you know, maybe at night and go over and use some of those spotted and speckled animals to breed with the solid colored flocks in order to increase his percentage of multicolored offspring. I hope you're understanding this. I know it's not super interesting, but <laughs> but what he's doing here is really demonstrating little, no, really no trust in his son-in-law which was very unfair when we consider how extremely honest Jacob had been, you know, in working with him for 14 years. Jacob later testified of his own honesty when he got, he finally got really mad at Laban and he let him have it. And um, he told Laban that he had never once in all those 20 years of working for him He had never used any of Laban's animals for his own food, although that was considered the right of every shepherd. You know, when they were out in the fields and sometimes they would kill a a small lamb and that would be their meal. But Jacob never, ever once used one of Laban's animals for his own food. 
And uh, he told him that he had never lost a single young uh, animal by miscarriage, which shows what a great shepherd he was. And he even bore the cost of any losses that were due to wild animals. In other words, if he lost an, a sheep or a goat to a wild animal, normally that loss went to the owner of the flock. But Jacob took the cost on himself. And this, you can read about this in chapter 31, verses 38 and 39, how honest he was. So there was no just cause for Laban to distrust Jacob. Nonetheless, he had all of the multicolored animals removed three days' journey from the other flocks so that there would be no possibility of Jacob crossbreeding them with the pure colored animals. Okay. Now we're going to get into the breeding, all right? And um, for, well, I think I'll read about it as I get to each section, so just wait a minute before I read it. Jacob had learned a great deal about shepherding um, during his many years, not only working for Laban, but also when do you think he learned a lot about shepherding? Right, down in Canaan. Um, when he had been working with his father. You know, his father was a rancher. And so he, even if he wasn't a shepherd, he has definitely heard about it all of his life. And so he had learned a whole lot about uh, sheep and goats and breeding. And obviously from what we learn here, he knew a whole lot more than either Laban or Laban's sons ever had learned. And he had obviously noticed something which occurred in reproduction, which we now know, we now refer to as Mendel's genetics. But, of course, he wouldn't have known all about that. But he was very observant, you know, and watching generation after generation of sheep and goats and even cows have their young, Jacob had learned that even pure-colored animals could give birth to multicolored animals, right? Mendel, was his first name Gregor, Gregor Mendel, I think, discovered that there are such things as dominant genes and recessive genes, which, you know, when they're put together in conception, they can produce various possibilities. For example, you, you, we all know that brown eyes, that's dominant over blue eyes, right? But yet, like you take my husband and I, we have three children. I've got, I don't know if you can see, but I've got really dark brown eyes. And we have three children, but two of them have really clear blue eyes, which is weird. (laughs) Frank has um, dark hazel. I mean, he does not have blue eyes. And that must be because his mother was real blue-eyed and my mother is real blue-eyed. So each one of us obviously has a recessive blue gene, blue blue gene, (laughs) and two out of three of our kids probably got the the two blue recessive genes. So they have recessive and recessive, and they came out with blue eyes. Actually, even our third child does not have brown eyes. She has a real pretty hazel green eye. So, you know, you never know what you're going to come out with, and that's because of dominant and recessive genes. And and that's what Gregor Mendel discovered. And, of course, Jacob didn't know this, but he knew it sort of by observing things. Um, So we can have two white sheep who can produce a spotted offspring if each white sheep has one dominant and one recessive gene, and two recessive genes come together in that young, you know, in that offspring. So Jacob understood that even pure-colored flocks and herds could produce and would produce some spotted and speckled offspring, but the percentage would not normally be very high. However, here's where his trust of the Lord was going to come in. He was going to trust the Lord for a higher-than-normal percentage. Now, why was he going to trust the Lord? Was Jacob really getting along in his spiritual growth here? Yes, he was, but he also had a good reason for it. If you'll slip over and look at Genesis 31.10, we find out that uh, somewhere along this time frame, now I don't know if this came before the beginning of this six years 
or in the middle of the sixth. I don't know when this dream occurred, but Jacob is in, in uh, chapter 31, verse 10. He is talking to his wives, Leah and Rachel, and he is telling them that the Lord revealed to him in a dream that he, the Lord, was going to increase the percentage of the multicolored animals himself. You know, he's going to, in other words, he was going to intervene and perform a miracle. Although the pure colored animals, you know, all the solid white sheep and all the brown and black goats, which would possess a recessive gene of spottedness or speckledness, although those animals would not be visibly seen by us, by men, Jacob wouldn't know by looking at all the white sheep, there's no way he could know which one of those white sheep had recessive genes, right? But who would know that? God. God could see right through because he created them. He could see into the DNA structure, and he knew which white sheep had recessive genes. He could look into the goats, and he knew which one of them, which of them had recessive genes. And then he could control, and this is what the dream was all about, you can read it on your own, but he would control which male males um, bred or mated with, with which females. And by doing that, I mean, God was in control. The animals always listened to God, and they did what God told them to do. He increased the mating between the partners, which would produce multicolored offspring. Then in addition to God's intervention to increase the percentage of multicolored animals born to the outwardly solid-colored animals. In addition to that, Jacob himself used some of these breeding techniques that he had learned, perhaps down in Canaan. Perhaps that's why they didn't know about them up in Haran. I thought maybe he learned about them down in Canaan. Or maybe he just learned about them through um, his own shepherding and experimentation. I don't know. But he used these breeding tactics to increase the amount of reproduction. You know, obviously the more the solid-colored animals would mate, if he could get them to mate more often, then the more offspring there would be, right? I mean, Laban would benefit because there'd be more solid-colored animals born, but he would also benefit, Jacob would benefit, because there'd also be more multicolored animals born. So what he did is he used some techniques that would speed up the reproduction, or not the reproduction process, but the mating process of the animals. And what we're going to do it now is look at the four breeding techniques that are used in verses 37 to 39, no, 37 to 42 by Jacob. And I am calling them, these are funny names, but I'm calling them the sticks, the separation, the stance, and the strength. And then the last thing we're going to look at under this third section is the success, and that we'll read about in verse 43, because he had great success and Jacob definitely prospered. But let's look now at the first breeding process, the sticks, verses 37 to 39. And Jacob took him rods of green poplar and of the hazel and chestnut tree and piled I mean, excuse me, and pilled white strakes in them, which means white streaks, and made the white appear which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had pilled before the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. And the flocks conceived before the rods and brought forth cattle ring-straked, speckled, and spotted. What Jacob is doing here is he took some rods from three different types of trees that you saw mentioned, and he peeled back the bark so that those rods, they were the branches from the trees, had streaks in them. I mean, the the white of the bark showed through. So the rods were streaked looking. Now, there are various ideas about what was he doing and why was he doing it. One school of thought says that Jacob believed in prenatal influence. And... um, this, this means that, in other words, if I really wanted it a brown-eyed child, that I would just stare at brown-eyed people a lot, 
while I was, you know, pregnant or before I got pregnant, and then that would be prenatal influence, I would influence the, the baby, the embryo, to, to be brown-eyed. All right, now we know, all know that that is foolish, okay? But that's what some people think he thought, and that's why he was doing it. Now, a second school of thought is that the chemicals in the wood of these peeled rods, when it mixed with the water, because he put the rods, he stuck them down in the watering troughs when the animals came to drink. And they say that the chemicals in, in the wood mixed with the water and influenced the outcome of the, babe, the offspring. And... Um, Actually, I'm not going to get into all this, but Dr. Henry Morris actually says that it, this is possible, that chemicals can, if they, if they reach the embryo prior to conception, they can have an influence on the DNA in the germ cells. However, Jacob would have had to have really been intelligent to figure all that out, so I don't really go along with that second school of thought. A third school of thought is that those striped rods added their chemicals, yes, they added their chemicals to the water, but not in order to influence the DNA, the gene structure, you know, so that multicolored animals would be born, but they were the chemicals mixed with the water and served as an aphrodisiac. Now, you all know what that is because we learned about it last time with the mandrakes. In other words, um, a sexual stimulant. The chemicals from those particular trees mixed in the water and the animals drank the water and it uh, excited them and um, therefore they, they bred more, all right? Now, it has been discovered that there are, there is at least one chemical substance in these trees that are mentioned that has been used in this way in the ancient and even in contemporary days as a sexual stimulant. So this is possible. This is very possible. It's also believed that the mere sight of the striped rods served as a sexual stimulant to the animals when they came to drink. In fact, we find, if you look at verse 38, it states that Jacob put the rods into the watering troughs so that, what does it say? So that they should conceive when they came to drink. And now, um, as soon as the man is out of here, you must go, oh my goodness, what are they talking about? <laughs> the, he the Hebrew word here, this is a secret among women. The Hebrew word for conceived that's used in verse 38 is the word yacham, which actually means to be hot. <laughs> so these striped rods in the water had the same effect as pornographic materials, you know, <laughs> on the sexual mechanism of the animals. It put them into heat. I mean, it made them hot and uh, hot to trot. And so, <laughs> see, you thought this was going to be a boring lesson. It turned out, <laughs> I still can't wait till I hear the song she writes. <laughs> no. <laughs> so anyway, this is the one I would probably go with. I think that he put those peeled sticks in the water in order to speed up the reproduction process um, so that the animals would have the most offspring in the shortest amount of time. And he knew this would benefit not only Laban. I mean, he wasn't cheating Laban. Laban was going to benefit from this too, but he was also helping himself out here. All right, now uh, the second thing we're going to look at, the second breeding te technique is actually two in one. He separates and then he puts the animals at a certain stance. So let's look at that in verse 40. And Jacob did separate the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the ring straked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves and put them not unto Laban's cattle. When the multicolored animals were born, that, you know, that were going to belong to him, Jacob, when they were born and when they were weaned away from their mother, Jacob took them off by themselves, okay, because they were the beginning of his own flock, according to his agreement. And then he did something rather strange. 
he had Laban's flocks. He took Laban's flocks. Now, now remember, not Laban's multicolored flock. Where is multi, the, Laban's multicolored flock? Three days away, and his sons are watching them. So he takes Laban's solid-colored flocks, and he makes them, I don't know how he did this, but he makes them take a grazing stance. You know, he puts them all, as they're grazing all day long, and he has them facing his own little flock of multicolored animals. You know, it started out little. It's going to grow. But all day long, those solid-colored sheep... I suppose if they turned, Jacob was right there to turn him back. All day long, they had to face the multicolored animals. Now, nobody knows for sure why he did this. Um, there's really been no completely satisfactory answer, um, except to say that Jacob may have been attempting a psychological thing here. <laughs> He was perhaps trying to make a subconscious impression on the solid-colored animals that the stripes and the speckles of, of the other animals that they were looking at all day long, that that was something desirable. You know, that's a mark of distinction. <laughs> so this is what you need to shoot for, guys. Also, looking all day long at striped animals may have increased the sexual drive in a similar manner to looking at the striped rods. And that's the best that people can come up with. <laughs> anyway, this is what he did, and um, it worked. <laughs> well, let's look now at the strength, verses 41 and 42. This is another technique he did, another intelligent breeding technique. And it came to pass when soever the stronger cattle did conceive that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the cattle were feeble, he put them not in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. All right. Um, here he, he divided the animals into two drinking shifts. Okay. One group consisted of the stronger animals, and the other group consisted of the weaker animals. Now, only when the stronger... And remember, this is over a period of six years that he's doing all this. Now, only when the stronger animals came to drink from the watering troughs did he then put in those striped rods. Um, but he didn't put the striped rods in the watering troughs when the weaker animals came to drink. So what do you think happened? The stronger animals got stimulated to mate, and they mated and had more strong animals. But the weaker animals didn't get stimulated by the rods, and so they didn't mate as much, and so they just had babies, but they were feeble babies. So, and he only did this, or he did this mostly with his own and not with Laban's. And so his animals, even though they had been the less desirable, now they became the more desirable because the multicolored became the stronger and the stronger. And his flocks grew and Laban's flocks were not growing as much. So he was using these techniques. And of course, God, remember, God is in all this too. God is definitely blessing and giving a much higher percentage that would normally be born of multicolored animals. So anyway, Jacob, um, his own flock was increasing not only quantitatively, but also now qualitatively. Now the last thing we're going to look at and we'll close is the success. Verse 43, it says, And the man, and that's speaking of Jacob, And the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle, and maidservants, and men servants, and camels, and asses. Jacob's flocks increased so much, and this is a six-year period here, that he found it necessary to go out and hire servants, you know, both male and female, to assist him in his work as a very prosperous rancher. Through the sale of some of his sheep and some of his goats, you know, he then went out and he purchased what? Camels and asses and you know he was able to finally abundantly provide for his large family and he had done nothing dishonest to gain all this wealth he had simply used good 
breeding skills. And of course, he was really blessed because of the Lord. He understood that the Lord blessed him not only from recognizing the abnormally high percentage of speckled and spotted, spotted animals which were born, but also from that God-given dream that he had received. I think that dream really helped him along in this. And he may have even gotten that dream before he made the wage proposal. We're not told when he was given the dream. Um, But as might be expected, the prosperity of Jacob did not go over real well with, who do you think? Laban or Laban's sons. And that's what we're going to see when we come back next week. I I really wanted to make this a four-outline thing because my fourth part was going to be the begrudging. And that's what we'll look at when we come back, but I didn't have time for it. Laban had been intentionally unfair to Jacob for many, many years, and he had taken great advantage of his nephew. He used him for his own advancement and not just, uh, you know, not justly recompensing him for his hard and honest labor. Um, But, as we said, Jacob was very, very good. He did very well in not avenging himself. He did very well as, you know, being a faithful and dedicated worker. And this is, I guess this is really a lesson for employees and how you work with your employer, even if he changes your wages ten times and if he treats you unjustly and takes advantage of you, what are you to do? You're to keep on having good work ethics and do your very best. We work as unto the Lord anyway, right? And just leave, you know, everything else up to the Lord. And the Lord did bless Jacob because of this. He turned out, I mean, he came to this area penniless, and he leaves a very, very wealthy rancher. We've seen this with all three of the patriarchs. All three of them were blessed by God and became very wealthy people, very wealthy men. The lesson for us, there is a little bit of a lesson in here for us. The lesson for us is to not destroy our testimony for the Lord no matter what evil men might do to us we must maintain our integrity integrity is a dying thing in this day and age but we must maintain our integrity at all costs and not return evil for evil we must continue even when we are defrauded even when we are cheated even when we are taken advantage of even if we are overworked and underpaid whatever the situation might be we are to seek to do the lord's will and keep our focus on him. I mean, he is the one, the one, the only one who will one day repay every evil who has, which has ever been committed against his children. He's the one who will judge, and he will judge justly. I mean, we might not get justice in our court system, but one day there will be justice. And God is the one who will bless, and he is the one who will prosper his own in his way and in his time. So we just need to, again, surrender to the sovereignty and the holiness and the justice and the love of our God. He will work all things together for good, ultimately, will he not? And for his glory. Thank you for your patience with this tough lesson. I really appreciate it. hope you have a blessed week. Let's pray. Thank you, God in heaven, for being such a wonderful, holy, righteous, just God. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to eat up our hearts and our minds by anxiety and stress over the injustices we see in this world because it is full of it. 